This episode is brought to you by Master Alton's Book Club. You know, most book club subscription services send you a book each month based on your pre-selected tastes in literature. Well, how can you expand your horizons that way? At Master Alton's Book Club, their scientifically randomized system sends you a copy of a book based on whatever happens to be sitting on the shelf next in line in a circular progression. This has been guaranteed to ensure that your reading will have an entirely serendipitous experience. Think of the excitement on your grandchild's face when a package arrives in the mail and she tears into it, not knowing whether it will be a textbook on petroleum plant engineering or a bodice-bursting romance novel, or an IKEA assembly manual. And now when you sign up with the promo code REREAD, one word, you'll be entered into their new Elite subscription service, where each month you'll get a book based on whether it has a peculiarly bound cover. And twice a year, your monthly choice will be selected by a blind man they've set loose in their warehouse. Thank you, Master Holton's Book Club, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the last couple of weeks where we have our bonus episodes with Joan Gordon and Nigel Price. We had a great time doing that. Hope it was a fun little surprise. We're going to try and do other things like that, especially for, you know, special chapters uh, along the way. Or if there's news, like there is news that Michael Andre Drusi's new book is coming out. So we do have another special coming up for that. Um, But also mainly wanted to be sure that, you know, we get other voices in here that you may not have heard before and may have read some other stuff online. But one thing that did mean is that we've spent a couple weeks now without talking about anything (laughs) that other people have been talking about online. So we have quite a bit of things for errata and notes and feedback and all the talk on social media. So we should just jump. Yeah, this is going to be a long one. So we should record how long it takes so people can say, okay, (laughs) this is where I paused it. Now I can go back and listen to what they have to say. Um, so first of all, we got a email from Adam Greenhill. He's just recently joined us and he contacted us. He's only recently begun reading Wolf and just finished the book of the new son a few months ago, but it appears the Wolf affliction is taken uh, because his <laughs> name, his email name is Thrax. So you know, <laughs> welcome, Adam. I send your loved ones, my condolences. He, uh, he noted that the conquest play of the Madison sword dance feels like it has some similarities to Dr. Tallis's play at the house. Absolute. I certainly do think they share the same symbolic feel. I'll, I'm going to keep that in mind when we get there. That's an interesting take. Yeah. I like the, the point there about performances that there are, you know, relatively few sort of, even though there's the one big stage presence, there's not a whole lot of other things like that that show up. Right. Uh, as we're going, we certainly get pieces of literature. We get the the stories and we get the storytelling contest in Citadel. But um, but yeah, as far as performance, you know, there's not a whole lot of music. We get just the, the, the theater. And then now this, you know, this dance, the sword dance. Right. Which, which he, Wolf doesn't even describe. We go, right. 
we'll get to that uh, in a while, but I don't think I had ever realized how little that is actually described in the, in the book. It was, we know that it's a sword dance. Um, Marcus Govea also contacted us via email with a lot of interesting takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for one, he has an offering from the end of Citadel of the Autark that expands on the sentiment that all men are torturers. Uh, he said, love, love is a long labor of torturers. And even if I were to dissolve the guild, Iada would become a torturer, as all men are, bound by the contempt for wealth without which a man is less than a man, inflicting pain by his nature whether he willed it or not, I was sorry for him and more sorry for Maxilindus, the sailor girl. I, I noticed that in this statement, there's some discrepancy between the original statement about who is torturing whom, uh, men or women. Yeah. I suppose yeah. everybody is torturing everybody as, as Severian sees it. Uh, he also notes that Wolf very explicitly connected the name Madachin with the sword dance they perform at the Feast of Holy Catherine. And yes, I agree. It's just that, well, it's an interesting thing to focus on, given that it is the one part of the ceremony that Severian never details. I mean, yeah, whatever. What do the kids call it? Random. It's just <laughs> so random. But Marcus doesn't leave it there. He supposes that the Madachin dance's performative ritual is pointing to a thematically central issue of the guild's purpose. This, this is what he says. He says, um, at the end of the Citadel, Palamon's final explanation of what the torturers were doing is in some sense providing a semblance, that is, a performance of justice, one that keeps people from despair and revolution. And he makes the point that it must be, quote, good men who do it, people who recognize that they put on merely a show of being an evil sect. They are, so to speak, masked. Marubius makes much the same point at the end uh, in talking with Cerverian about being an actor, and even Dorcas does in the Claude of the Conciliator chapter named aptly Personifications. And then uh, Marcus opined that this might be one of the secrets of the guilds that the masters impart to Severian before his elevation. Uh, he says, notice how hard Gerloise must try to frighten those outside to convince them the guild is a bunch of Darth Vaders into whose hand no one would ever wish to even their worst enemy to fall. Reputation is paramount. Marcus notes all the theatricality about Severian's job as a headsman, wearing ridiculous, frightening costumes, having his payment tossed on the ground, vaulting onto the platform. Uh, he notes the physicality of the jobs, such as Morwenna's execution, as well as Thecla's and Agilus's, and the misdirection that Gerloise engages in at the moment of execution. And Marcus says, Torment must always look worse than it is. Maybe this is also part of why the jungle magician's bluster bothers Severian so much in sort of the lictor. That kind of magic is too close to home. Now, I like this a lot because that emphasis on the performative side of what Severian does, both in the actual like celebration in the dance of the Mannerchens, but also how that connects to 
all the other ways that even his practicing his art, as he'll say, has all these theatrical things that he has to set up and practice and make sure it looks good and prancing around the stage, all the stuff that he mentioned mm-hmm. and making the, the tower called the Madachin Tower and that Madachin dance being you know, connected to that performance of what they do. That actually, I think, answers for me that question that we had a long time ago of why, yeah, why is the Madachin Tower called the Madachin Tower? That to me makes that aspect of it make a whole yeah. lot of sense. So I really appreciated the way he put that together. And there's so much theatricality in Severian's culture. It, at the Feast of St. Catherine, there's a basically a huge, very ritualized play that goes on uh, where with a chorus and everyone taking different parts. And of course, he just wanders into, into Dr. Talis's plays and takes a role without even thinking of saying, wait, wait, I don't think right. I can take this. I th- and that's a good point. Cause that's one thing that I think a lot of people are like, how can this dude just walk in and suddenly start being an actor? Maybe instead what we're supposed to be <laughs> thinking is, Oh, he did it so easily because he's used to being an actor. Yeah. That, yeah. that actually makes something that seems somewhat surreal and almost, you know, could even be like bad writing, but when you think of it from that direction, it fits perfectly. Marcus also has some curiositous Earthus offerings about other real-world locations in the Commonwealth, if Nessus is assumed to be Buenos Aires. He suggests the location of the meeting with the Kumean is Aruru. It's the location, he, he says, it's the location of a cult of dancing demons. Uh, he's referring to the Carnival de Aruru, where they have their annual traditional diablada devil's dance he says that other people have probably traced it out in greater detail i'm not sure they have aruru bolivia is actually well situated for severian's path it's southeast of lake titicaca the the likely parallel for lake diaterna as marcos also noted it's close but not too close it's not too far north either he says uh it does make me wonder if we can trace the path Severian takes by the cults that he meets. Like, is there a ceremony for the new sun among the Bolivian natives? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure, but there is a direct new sun connection to traditional South American culture. Uh, we're still talking about how I should present that one way or another. I will address it. It's long winded, comprehensive detail. So, you know, eventually, I won't say soon, we all know, but you know, nothing happens soon here. Well, finally, he gives us some help pronouncing uh, tre, uh, tri, tre, the name <laughs> of Severian's dog. Literally, the word means three-legged. So, you know, it, it's an unappropriate, if unimaginative name. It's actually spelled with an S, at the end, which Wolf has truncated. The third syllable is an Ada. This is all from, from Marcus. This is his explanation. Uh, in a classroom for ancient Greek, he says that it would be pronounced triskele, emphasis on the last symbol, syllable. But in modern and Byzantine Greek, it would be pronounced triskele, and triskele is typical of how it's usually translated into English as just as we pronounce uh, Pericles and Socrates. So 
you know, what do you know? My instincts were correct. Although I botched the <laughs> syllables. The one thing when he talked about that too, just a little aside that did make me start thinking is Wolf does have then Greek names in there, but then it's Latin that he chooses to use for, mm-hmm. you know, the, the languages that have been forgotten. Greek is then connected in the mythological names that we have to end also with this uh-huh. creature, this beast. Well, all that kind of fits with something that Joan Gordon had said that, Wolf was an autodidact. Yeah. And so he he had an interest in all these things, but you know, he he wasn't a Greek teacher. He he did things as he thought yeah. made sense. He also uh says that in English we would Latinize the accents so that it would be triscally and says that's the way he prefers. So haha, I went again. <laughs> but what pronunciation did Wolf prefer? Marcos refuses to guess because Wolf said in Castle of the Otter that the name of the people to the north of the Commonwealth is Acheans, which Marcos finds difficult to stomach. He says that the Greek pronunciation would be Askeans. And I guess I'm in the doghouse again because I've always reflexively pronounced it Asians. So I'm even worse. I always said Askeans. <laughs> well, you're right. Look, you would be it. Askeans. Yeah. You and you and Marcus are, are on the same page. There's more about Triscally on the Facebook group. Filippo uh, de Paolo opined that Triscally was imagined by Severian. Or as we often say at the end of Christmas specials, Triscally was in our hearts all along. <laughs> I can't say that this is in any way in the rankings of a favorite theory of mine, but he did offer a personally delivered wolf quotation. Some facts are there, he said many times, just to make the story move. Which reminds me of fan complaints that in the book of the short sun, the characters return to earth and encounter young Severian, which some people thought was kind of fan servicey or lame. And he said something like, it would have been stupid to introduce dream travel and not have them go back. They can do it, so they have to do it. Ian Smith initiated an interesting discussion on when in the future. That is, if that is a realistic term in a story with a universe that's expanding and collapsing in cycles, when in the future Severian is. A few thousand years, ten thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands. Wolf has even gestured, you know, toward a million years. You know, although Wolf has often surprised me with the degree to which he has built worlds to contain even very limited stories, I've become truly skeptical that the date can be credibly nailed down better than in the distant future. I just, everything, there's too many conflicting uh, mm-hmm. aspects to this. And I wonder too, if part of it is that we're supposed to intentionally be a little bit confused. I mean, there are other, there are times when other characters themselves seem confused about how time passes. And especially by the time we get to earth of the new sun, the sailors talk about how they'll even be confused about how long they've been gone and whether they're going backwards or mm-hmm. forwards in time. So I think, yeah, I think in it probably in the end with this one far future to the point where things have been forgotten is probably about as specific yeah. as we'll get. Although now I'm curious because remember Nigel said too that uh, he was editing a piece by Michael Andrew Drusi for Alden's Library about dating the future history. So we'll see. Charles Gillingham suggested that Severian is a biologically engineered entity. 
I suppose that's not impossible. And fits with certain other things. I remember I got excited because he mentioned just also just as a straight up robot. <laughs> and he was like, Severian is a robot. Yeah. <laughs> please, <be> please <laughs> elaborate on that one. <laughs> David Wells suggested that something might have gone on between Valeria and Severian in their initial encounter that Severian was ashamed of. Thus, the lacuna describing how their engagement ended how he got home, the rest of the week. I confess, I still find the telling of their encounter um, difficult, shameful to Severian. He's so hard to shame. It's not that this doesn't sound reasonable. It's just that I can't figure at this time what something like that might be. Yeah, and there are so many things left out about Valeria and in that point. The one thing that he listed a whole bunch of possibilities on that post, which I liked because it made me think that my feeling weird about Severian never describing how he got back to the tower, uh-huh. it made me feel good. <laughs> I was like, at least, okay, I'm not the <laughs> only one who thinks that's weird because there are a lot of other things that could be going on. Right, exactly. And honestly, too, one thing that thinking about that sort of gap in the narrative there did was make me think that maybe yeah there's more that we're supposed to be supposing about valeria that i'll be honest mm-hmm. when i first when we when we talked about that before i was still kind of you know i don't think it's all that mysterious or special the more i think about it now i'm yeah there's something else going on there i still don't know what curiouser and curiouser and curiouser a, yes indeed. well i noted to david that severian's feelings for valeria seemed to warm throughout the course of the yeah, story. For some I hadn't reason. noticed that, but you found, you talked about how um, in different passages all the way through Citadel. Right. At the end of the Shadow of the Torture, he describes her as all but forgotten. Yeah. But, and by the middle of Citadel, of uh, the Autark, he's calling her the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And her face so, pulling at his heart again. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, you know, that 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 time when he comes back to, to see her at the very end, Maybe that happens sometime in between um, the Sword of Lictor and the uh, Citadel of the Autark. That's something I never actually considered before. I assumed that everything had happened. Well, it's a very long book. <laughs> but it, yeah, his entire viewpoint of her changes through the course of the hmm. story. It's very strange. On the way that Olton and company acquire their apprentices, Pat Moody remarked that it makes the library a rather sinister place. Well, you know. Craig, you and I have come to similar conclusions for different reasons this time. Pat proposed that Wolf might have flown under the radar as our greatest horror writer. Uh, Certainly his settings could be easily framed as horror, and some have claimed that peace is just that. Regarding my talk with Joan Gordon, Mark Aramini took issue with Joan's assertion that what Gene Wolfe intended is of little importance after his stories are published. She argued that if a theory can be supported in the text, it is, quote, a true theory, whether it was intended or not. As I said, responding to him, the text is interesting because the author intended something So I wouldn't personally go so far as to say the author's intent means nothing, but I don't think an author is allowed to trespass on the text in a way that imputes meaning he in no way put on the page. J.K. Rowling got into uh, 
trouble with some of her fans when she declared that Dumbledore had had a gay romance in his youth. And the response was, you know, if you wanted that to be true, why didn't you write it? And I think that's a fair point. For example, Wolf has alternately called Severian a Christ figure and a Christian figure, just as Joan noted. Which of these is true? What is true is, frankly, what he wrote, even if what he wrote is a failed attempt to convey something else. However, the case can be made either way for that, I think. On the general sort of philosophical point, I I still basically come down on Joan's side that if an author intended something, the text needs to do it on its own, right? Like that an author right. can't just say, oh, this is what I meant, even though it never comes up in the text. Like that can be interesting. That can teach us maybe about how the, the thing is going. But in the end, the story has to do it on its own. And that's a problem for many wolf stories because he leaves so much oh, out. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and yeah, so it's specifically a problem for him. And maybe that's, you know, why I think maybe sometimes people have trouble with a lot of his later stuff was because he might not have in some cases put enough in there to do it. Or he thought was a, right. a good enough clue wasn't really for a majority of people. Maybe that's a problem with the reader rather than him. Maybe the book is only meant for two or three people. <laughs> maybe so. But, and the one thing I would say about Mark's comment there is that even though I totally get where he's coming from, the one thing I like about what Mark does is everything that he finds there to be Wolf's intention, he can actually still find in the text. Like he can still find those things there. That's true. So yeah. I, you know, yeah, um, I, I totally know where Mark's coming from. I also think that Mark would still want to say, yeah, but, but you know, the text are part of the reason the books are so good is because it's all there in the text. You don't have to go <laughs> to an interview or somebody to say, what did you mean by this? That, that if you're a good enough reader, well, good. Well, do we do we have more? I think we're done. Um, but if I forgot something, be sure and please tell me. We are talking about a few weeks of discussion on there, and and you know we're certainly not going to get everything every time, but we did want to to throw out the big things because, like we always say, people are having great conversations, especially on the Facebook group, and sending us really fun emails. So, all right. Well, shall we finally get into the library ourselves? Yes, we can. After we finished with uh, with Nigel and Joan. We just found we still had things to say. And uh, that sounds just like us. Well, here we go. All right. So we're going to hop into chapter six, the master of the curators. So the story continues directly from the previous chapter. Severian has wandered through the, the Pinocotheca and the picture galleries in search of Master Alton to deliver a message. He is obviously the master of the curators named for the title of the story. The implication from his name is that he is not only in charge of the libraries, but also the picture galleries. And I guess there are sculpture galleries and museum pieces. This is all part of a section of the Citadel called the Grand Court. Severian has followed Rudison's directions down a dark circular stone stairway, looking for a locked door. While groping in the darkness of the door, he hears someone say, who's there? And one... One thing about that real quick, just because we, I don't know if we really talked, I don't remember now if we talked about it last time, but I know some people wonder whether he actually had the right directions or whether Rudison gave him bad directions and he just found some, found his way down there anyway. But so that's a question that I know some people have that comes up. And my sense was not that he's wrong. It's that whenever he gets to where the door is, it's black, it's dark. And so he just doesn't get to knock on the door and 
comes right. in where where he was supposed to be. Um, and I think that if that matters at all, it would matter because I think some people wonder, you know, when, since he's again in, in the second chapter here, wandering in tunnels down in the bottom, whether there's been some other kind of traveling that goes on. Right. Um, and I I don't particularly think so. I mean, you know, if, if I don't believe it's the time, it's time tunnels quite as much as anything else. The way that does connect to is um, if the idea that, you know, like Alton says, that the library extends throughout the Citadel and outside the walls um, and, and even to the House of Jury, then that's one I guess way that you could make a connection to maybe he has momentarily traveled to the house of Jure instead of being literally under the, under the Citadel. But I don't, yeah, it seems like a, a lot of stretching for, for things. I feel like what? it's just the, the door was open. <laughs> well, I like, I like the idea that the library also has its own uh, time tunnels, like those that are underneath the uh, Madigan tower. The library is, dimension. That would be yeah, awesome. because because you know the <laughs> library covers the entire Commonwealth, and it also uh -huh. covers you know all time as well. So that would be really cool. But Rudison has a conversation with Severian at the at the Great Keep. It's clear, I think, from the conversation that he expected Severian to go down to the library. He wanted him to go down to the library. He had his own personal motivations for Severian's improvement in sitting mm -hmm. in the library. So I don't think he sent him the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah, I don't either. I was just, that was just, <clears throat> excuse me, one thing I was going to mention since, yeah, since at the end he talks about getting, or in the last chapter he talks about getting down into the dark again. But yeah. But yeah. Okay. Sorry. So Alton, Alton is a tall man with a white beard that goes almost to his waist. Although Severian is taller than average, uh, what does that mean? Like six one, six two? It depends on the average height of this era. But Alton is a head taller, a head and a half taller. Head and a half, yeah, yeah. He's a he's a he's a a true exultant. Right. Which, by the way, that means we're talking about exultants as being like you know seven and a half feet tall or eight feet tall. Sometimes, um, it just that came up actually. Someone on one of the Facebook groups was doing some drawings and people were talking about how tall Thecla should be and how tall mm -hmm. Exultant should be. And, and yeah, I was even sort of thinking taller, <laughs> you know, like it should be unusually taller, like not just a tall woman, but um, a remarkably unusually tall. Woman. That goes back to Baldanders then too. If Baldanders is a giant, then, you know, how, how tall are we actually talking there with him? Yeah. Well, no, he's gotta be big. Yeah. But, but when he was, when Severian saw Vodalus and Thea in the cemetery, he felt like, that he, he said that Thea was, was shorter than Vodalus. So I would guess mm -hmm. that female exaltants, like everyone else, tend to be mm -hmm. shorter than males. Yep. Could be. Could be. Definitely. Definitely. But Olden is old. He's old. He was old mm -hmm. before Sarian was born. Yeah. And everything about this initial description of Olden is peculiar, as I talked about last week. Yeah. Is, and the only yeah. other the one other thing about him is just when he says a true exultant, um, and this could be a small thing, but it, you know, to identify someone as a true exultant rather than um, a false exultant. But I mean, it could be here that what he's doing is he's comparing, you know, people call me, you know, I was tall mm -hmm. already, but, and I, and he does get mistaken for upper class because of um, his, his height and position later on, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, but I guess a true exultant here is something you're born an exultant, right? You have to mm -hmm. be born to as an exultant, but 
let's say only one parent was an exultant. And then, so maybe you have an exultants who are more like Severian. Actually, yeah. Severian is is maybe half exultant himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, so, so once again, his voice voice sounds like a tolling of a bell. That's really just that was really great uh, to talk about with uh, with Nigel, and and like Bronze, he's a big man. He might be said a big man might be said to sound like that like his voice is bronze have you ever seen like andre the giant or something like that but Severian's going to meet a lot of exultants he has met other exultants and none of their voices are described that way he sees he sees the uh woman that was exhumed from the cemetery kind of rise up before him he kind of draws a line directly between him at, between Alton and the woman and i have again i have my own <laughs> personal suspicions about that oh Severian answers that He's there to deliver a message to Alton, of the, Alton, the curator. There are some introductions. Moulton makes a school marmish comment about Severian's grammar. Severian never even seems to notice that, you know, he was being corrected. Right. But <laughs> it's kind of funny because now Severian is here writing this, showing himself as not not getting it. Right. right. Like if you think about that, just kind of to, it's a moment to think about how Severian's presenting himself here in his own memorial or in his own memoir. You know, he's intentionally putting things in here that, you know, make him still look very young, make him look immature. Right. Um, which uh, I just know that that how Severian's personality is presented in especially these first chapters has been a really big issue lately. Um, in a lot of the discussions, you know, is Severian smart? Is he naive about certain things? And I think it's important to note that, you know, there are times like this where he's presented as naive, but it's also Severian later, possibly intentionally showing himself to be naive. I feel like that could be something where we're part of the intentional story of why he's doing this memoir is to show how he grew, how he, he developed. Just a small point, but but I think it's important. Yeah. The comparisons between Gene Wolfe and Nabokov are warranted, but I think it's a mistake to read Severian as a Humbert Humbert character who is uh, maliciously manipulative in the portrayal of the facts or in his language. He's he's trying his. I think he's trying his best. Some of the his presumptions about the world about men and women about justice are foreign to us because this is a story from the future, from another time. Yeah. I think that it's also important to put all those kinds of things in the context. Like it's, it's sometimes easy to say like, does Severian know when he's doing something naive or does, does he, is it Gene Wolfe who's trying to show that Severian's naive or is it older Severian who's trying (laughs) to show that younger Severian is naive? And that's a, it's an important thing to think about. By the way, that also comes back to, you know, we've never, we haven't yet decided on exactly how we want to take those um, possible mistakes, like the Drotten Roach from the first thing, like what, when he, when his memory is sort of clearly shown to be wrong about something, um, we still haven't made a good decision. <laughs> I don't feel like about that. So we can we'll get there. I have plenty of ideas, but we just haven't actually. Well, there are, I, I can, I, I still come upon errors and mistakes and it's, and I haven't come upon one that is as glaring and as obvious as the Roche Strat 
one. You could still make the argument, oh, well, you know what? The author made a mistake here. Uh, that's the that's tricky part. Yeah. But I'm going to keep my eye out for anything that is definitive and obvious. Yeah. Just on that note, too, just on that note about the Drott and Roche part, um, I had some uh, just email back and forth with Mark Aramini, and he said that he's he feels like it it really should be thought of as a typo. So it's just important to put out there that, you know, lots of people who spend a lot of time with these things still disagree on on how to take things. Yeah. So. You know, this is a typo that has persisted mm -hmm. across all versions. Mark makes a makes a good point about the fifth head of Cerberus and what that the name of, of a child that is a typo and the pronoun shift at the end of the second story right yeah, but it changes but it changes in the in different versions it's it's corrected yeah. this has never been corrected so I was talking I was talking to Michael uh, Andre Driussi and he said in his opinion the memory errors have to do with the fact that as as Severian and the heroes are changing time by moving around in it, that time itself is changing and fluctuating. Near the end uh, of uh, Citadel of the Autark, Severian talks about his gift and how it is that he can heal, uh, you know, even without the, the, the claw, when he doesn't have the claw. And he says, but if, as Master Malrubius told me, those who will judge me among the stars will take my manhood, should I fail their judgment? Is not it possible also that they will confirm me in some gift of equal worth should I, as humanity's representative, confirm their desires? It seems to me that justice demands it. If that is the case, may not it be that their gift transcends time as they do themselves? The Herodules I met at Baldander's castle said they were interested themselves in me because I would gain the throne. But would their interest have been so great if I were to be no more than the embattled ruler of some part of the continent, one of many embattled rulers in the long history of Earth? So and here he says that he suspects and he, that when he attains the new son, what he becomes will transcend time and will affect him throughout his life. And perhaps it is that he is aware of changing time or he is aware of the uh, of other timelines and other events in other yeah. uh, iterations of Earth. And I think one reason why I really like that theory is it makes Severian's memory mean more like his his good memory. Like the what I mean is that I I get worried sometimes that people get hung up on Severian's memory as just kind of a superpower mm -hmm. you know, that he has. And then they're, they're sitting there questioning, okay, well, did he get something right or not? And I don't think that's the reason Wolf gave him this memory. I feel like he gave him this memory for a couple larger reasons. One being when he actually gets everyone else like Thecla's and the Autarch's memories, it's more than just sort of having information. He can actually sort of, as the very first word that he says, recreate. I mean, like, like recreate these things. It's more like it's a super vivid memory that makes them come much more alive inside of him, maybe even literally alive. I mean, that's that's one thing you could think about. The other thing, though, is then when you talk about this and about how he becomes something that transcends time, his memory then being so good is it's really important there because then it becomes not just a really powerful tool that he can use, but actually uh, 
his memory is so good, possibly because he's constantly out of time. Like he's able to sort of shift back and forth as if another way to, to think about it would be as if someone could not just remember things from different periods, but could actually go relive them at any point. Um, I'm thinking of my son just had to read Slaughterhouse Five for for school, and you know where Billy Pilgrim, you know he can basically remember anything in his life because he literally jumps around in time, um, and so he doesn't just remember it; he actually is constantly reliving all kinds of different things. I don't know if I'd say that that's exactly what Severian means, but take the idea that here's a guy who has now sort of transcended time and and has lived in the past well maybe one reason why his memory is so good is because he does partly live outside of time um and so all of those different times are present to him when he remembers it's much less impressive to me or important to me that severian has perfect memory because we always assume any first person narrator has perfect memory we if he relates a conversation that happens between you know, two adults while he's a child, we just assume that that's exactly what happened. What's more important to me is why it's important that Severian thinks he has a perfect memory. Yep. yep. Particularly when there's implications that maybe he doesn't have such a perfect memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. I completely agree. That's a much, much more interesting question. All right. We'll get back to the chapter. <laughs> Alton tells him to read the message because of course he's blind. But Severian doesn't know that right away, and he keeps trying to hand him the message. Alden clarifies that Severian can read, and so he suggests that he read the letter to him. Well, he can. Well, what if I broke the seal? Could you read it then? He says, well, it's it's dark. We're not getting anywhere. <laughs> so Alden calls for Kibi, 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 Kubi to bring, the, bring a light. Kibi uh, comes with a five-branched candlestick. He's about 40 years old, with a flat, pale face, eyes the color of watered milk. He has a high, squared forehead with receding hair. Severian later considers that Gibby was a little boy, Prentice, when Alton was a master. We learn that Gibby is Alton's own apprentice. It seems that the li librarians, or maybe all the curators, have no journeymen. Alton is the master of the curators, but he is also the master of the librarians, a division of the curators. Gibby will be the chief librarian when Alton dies. Mas Alton's master before him was Gerbold. The librarians or curators, it's not clear, clear which, have their feast day in early spring. On their feast day, they have a procession down Ayubar Street. The meaning of the word Ayubar is complex, but it's something that brings the light of the daytime. Practically, I take it, to mean that it runs east to west. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the street brings the dawn. And of course, is not at all unconnected, bringing light, bringing dawn. Apparently, the street and the procession is outside the citadel in Ness's proper. But there are lots of light references associated with Kibby. He himself in this story brings light. In the procession, Kibby walks beside Olton at the front of the procession. Rather than Fulligen, their guild wears gray. Gibby notes that the feast day occurs in the time of year when the trees lining Ayobar Street are just putting out their leaves. Kibby likes blossoming plants, and he likes anybody else who does too. They march to the cathedral in Nessus, which is lit up with candles. The candles are supposed to represent the claw of the conciliator. 
just because this is the first time we get it. When he talks about how the blue candle or the candles are supposed to symbolize the claw, he specifically says that they're blue candles um, uh, or huh. blue glass, the, the candles in blue glass yeah. to symbolize that, the claw. Yeah, which makes perfect sense. With, exactly the way. Especially once we find out, you know, what the claw actually looks like. Um, but I'm also trying this time to pay attention to how things are lined up with blue and green. So, so even here, the color blue is um, really important for the claw. Um, even in, in remembering the claw, so in, in, in things that symbolize it. So that's sort of just a note for myself to come back to. The torturers instead go to the chapel in the Citadel. So apparently all these guilds, festivals, have a religious aspect and a protector saint. Mm -hmm. So Varian said that he was surprised that the librarians were allowed to leave the Citadel. We were told already that Severian and his friends weren't allowed to go into Nessus, but here we see that it's not just a Madigan Tower rule. It applies generally to all the guilds. So... Why do you think that is? Um, I would think that, I mean, it it makes more sense for the the torturers not to be, you know, set loose on everything because of what we find out later, that people are scared of them. They they see them. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I often wonder if part of that is to keep them sort of a frightening myth rather than just a common reality. Um, you know, they're certainly going to be feared more if they're mysterious. So that could be one reason to keep the torturers inside. But I got a sense that the librarians particularly are entitled to leave the city because the library extends beyond. That's it. right. And he does say exactly that. Well, he doesn't give that exact reason for it. But yeah, he does later on talk about how the, the library extends past everything else. Well, I was just thinking that perhaps the reason the upholsterers and the and the torturers and the bear tower and the witches keep aren't supposed to leave the citadel is because the citadel is a fortress and when it was built everybody in there was only there to stay in the fortress you don't want your your guards the people who are supposed to be defending the fortress or supplying the fortress to be out mingling with the wild natives which is exactly who the people of of nessus that's mm -hmm. surrounding the citadel originally were yeah it could well be that that would make sense and it could also be part of i mean Especially at this point in the book, we're still learning about how class divided this this commonwealth is. Um, and that would be another thing that you keep the, the skilled laborers are all kept in one place and then the, the unskilled laborers outside. Um, it could be something like that. Um, so one other thing that's fun, if you haven't read it recently and you don't know why James just said upholsterers, <laughs> that's ah. that's one of the uh, one of the few guilds we mentioned. I love that our the guilds we get are torturers. <laughs> witches, these terrifying animal trainers, you know, now curators, which seems really good. And then upholsterers, <laughs> like that's the well, one I, other one that we get a name for or, or an actual sort of. Well, actual let's, let's wait on it because I think that there's a reason for why the upholsterers mm -hmm. had this sudden effect on Alden. And one other, just one other thing that, that comes up because and it's just really a question I still have after all this time. When he talks about the procession that they have, I wonder if this literally is just the librarians, which means that it would be Alton and Kibi, just the two of them walking down the street. Um, or is this sort of like all the different curators? Because we do know that there are other curators. Rudison, there are the people in the uh, the gardens. Later on, the botanic gardens are um, manned by by curators. I have to assume that it's all of the curators' feast day and not just the librarians, because otherwise what he's just described is really kind of silly of this quote-unquote procession that's just two people. <laughs> um, well, we only see Kibby and, and Olden, but surely there are more librarians. 
around. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a big library. I mean, he and, Alton talks about himself, like even when I was the apprentice and then I became master when he died. So it's almost like they're Sith Lords. You know, there's only one and two <laughs> each time. Well, I don't know. I mean, there there are libraries in every city. So someone's yeah. got to be up at their front. Yeah, I think it I would think, make more of a practical sense. That's that's certainly true. <laughs> it but, makes an easier picture yeah. of, of all the yeah. give you leading the librarians. The library, as we said, extends beyond the Citadel, extends into Nessus, all the way to House Absolute, all the other libraries in the city. The Citadel Library and all the libraries are the same. It's one library. It's the only institution that's like that. Alton says the con the contents of the Citadel are larger than the container. Are we supposed to assume that there's like all these, that it, the library just goes on and on underneath the entire Commonwealth or that these are, you know, like Father Ineri's mirrors or something? Right. Or it could be more metaphorical too, even that, you know, our, we're responsible for all of the collections and the fact that the House Azure has a collection too means that we're still responsible for that collection. It could be something like that. Um, I feel like, though, once we especially know how much history Earth has, um, I feel like the literal meaning of it just being this huge, expansive vault <laughs> of, of all kinds of things is possibly much more accurate. As the three walk on and on through the library, Severian notices that rats have been nesting in the books, rearranging them to make two and three level homes. The covers are smeared in writing in their dung forming their rude characters of their speech and this is just awesome so so when i first read this I, even even when i reread it i always think okay that's just a cute way to say that they've smeared dung all over everything but then i was looking at it this time and it you could take it literally like they're writing but also when they make when he says that they make snug two and three level homes Mm -hmm. That's what hit me this. I was like, oh, so that that shows like some construction and planning. Um, yeah. So we've got some we have some kind of, you know, <laughs> crazy radiated rats that are, are yeah, forming it, their it, own culture here. The library is a big place. It's probably their addresses on top of those <laughs> little houses. Yeah, I think there's an interesting story for all these hyper intelligent rats living in the library. It's a, a, a another writer might have made that a tentpole franchise all by himself. We don't, there aren't any other rats that are mentioned ever really, are there? No, I mean, certainly yeah, there's yeah. not a rat character, but I was trying to remember if there were other times that he even mentions sort of vermin or something like that. No, he's not really a, I, I can't think of any other books. If someone can, can point us to another story where he, where Wolf talks about rats, that would yeah. be, <laughs> That, that, you know, I don't think he's I don't think he's really into rats, but uh, which explains why he didn't make this a, a secondary franchise. They keep walking books of all sorts of bindings. I, I think it's just really the, the description here of the, of the books is really good. It, he says uh, rows of spines and calf Morocco binders, cloth, paper and a hundred other substances I could not identify. Some flashing with guilt, many lettered in black, a few with paper labels so old and yellowed that they were as brown as dead leaves. Alton quotes that of the trail of ink, there is no end and that a man will give his life over turning over a collection of books. As they walk, Alton explains that while he was an apprentice until he became a master at 50 years old, he read, he describes his pattern for reading, which feels a bit familiar to any serious book reader. 
Year followed straggling year for me, and all that time I read. I suppose few have ever read, so I began, as most young people do, by reading the books I most enjoyed. I found that narrowed my pleasure in time until I spent most of my hours searching for such books. Then I devised a plan of study for myself, tracing obscure sciences, one after another, from the dawn of knowledge to the present. Eventually, I exhausted even that, and beginning at the great ebony case that stands in the center of the room, we of the library have maintained for 300 years against the return of the autark suspicious, and into which, in consequence, no one ever comes, I read outward for a period of 15 years, often finishing two books in one day. When Gerbil died and he finally became master, at 50, remember, he says he was unready by 30 years to be ideally suited by reason of predilection, education, experience, youth, family connections, and ambition to succeed him. At the time I actually did so, no one could have been less fit. I had waited so long that waiting was all I understood, and I possessed a mind suffocated beneath the weight of inutile facts. I love that word. Inutile, yeah. The, or is he saying that he was not he was 30 years short of being ready to be the master or he had passed his time of being ready by 30 years yeah it's it feels to me like he's saying he uh had had passed when he should have been that it should have been as a younger man that you know because mm -hmm. he says that all he had all he knew was waiting at that point mm -hmm. um kind of like it's too old to start something <laughs> start something new and <laughs> in a sense um that's true not sort of for his fault but because he goes blind he says he's not able to to do everything that he wanted to do um no. but then also he says that he doesn't really or he didn't really realize what he was supposed to do as a librarian um until he had been reading for a long 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 time and then realized it probably wasn't reading <laughs> than he, that he should have been doing um yeah so that's when i feel like it's almost like he's saying i should have I should have started this when I was younger. There was a, a question on Twitter recently where somebody said that they had heard that people who create and write don't consume much media mm -hmm. and is asking whether that was true. And there was some debate over that. And Neil Gaiman uh, said that all he can say is that he, if he had not read so much in his youth, he would know, not have been ready to write anything when he sat down to write. I, I think that makes a ton of sense. On the other point, one thing I do think is interesting is if you talk to or, or read a lot of um, sci-fi fantasy writers, a lot of genre folk, and you ask them what they're reading, as they get older, they stop reading a lot of genre um, that they, they still, of course, read, but it's usually things that are less like what they actually write. Um, and I get that. Uh, I'm, you know, especially I have a lot of musician friends and, and a lot of people say that they stop listening to the music that they actually write a lot of times um, because it just, it, it either feels too close or, or in some ways they're, they're not interested in consuming it anymore because they're making it so much, um, yeah. which is interesting. But yeah, the fact that you have to do it when you're young, I mean, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So I think, uh, but I think, I think Wolf is describing here the process of preparing to write a book because after he gets to that point, he says, but I forced myself to take charge and I spent more hours than I could 
expect you to believe now in attempting to recall the plans and maximums I had laid down so many years ago for my eventual succession. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, Nigel was was agreeing with that too last time. I, I've told you before, and so I, I guess now is a good time to lay it out, but reading it this time, this discussion or, or this sort of autobiography that Alton gives seems to me to, to kind of take things in a different place. It seems like as I was reading it this time, I got a real sense that Alton was kind of directionless. And I don't want to be mean to Alton because I know I know a lot of people, you know, have, there's a there's a soft spot for, for Alton in the library here. But I feel like the way he describes his reading is always kind of random. And it's also, mm-hmm. I feel like, important to note that his master, Gerbil, never seems to have really done much to teach him things like he says you know i all i knew to do was wait i didn't really know even know kind of what i was supposed to be doing as a master and so when he describes his reading it's like first i did it which he says is wrong i did what everybody does and so he describes then different ways that he read i mean even he would take one topic and exhaust it but then he talks about even just physically reading books like starting from the center and sort of working your way out which is kind of directionless, right? I mean, especially Mm -hmm. since he talks about how the library wasn't always particularly well organized later on. And that was going to be one of the jobs was to, to put things in a better, in a better order. But that struck me as being sort of a, a point of saying that he's got a lot of information. He knows a lot of things, but even he says that word in utile, that it's kind of useless when he, when he gets it all done. So there was no real organization to all this knowledge. And even though we might think of him as incredibly well-read and educated, it's almost like he's saying, yeah, but I didn't really have a good context for much of this stuff. But I can really, I can, I can relate to that because as a young person, I read and consumed anything, Mm -hmm. literally anything and i and i dreamed of being able to just read them all i I imagined this i I had this idea i was always socially awkward and if i read them all then i would always know what to say at a party (laughs) and little did i know that i could have done a lot better if i would just studied sports statistics and (laughs) the latest shoe styles and have done a lot better yeah yeah i mean i i totally get that i feel i yeah, <laughs> you know, I just sort of doesn't prepare you for that. I'm totally there because I knew, you know, I was the one sitting there trying to learn Elvish when I was like 13 years old. So, um, yeah, totally. But I feel like with with Alton, it, he even talks about how the trajectory of his career was ultimately kind of a disappointment that, you know, he got the job then late and then he found out that he wasn't really prepared for it. He kept reading for a long time. By the time he realizes that he really was supposed to be taking care of the physical books, um, he was already very old. And now now that they've gotten, you know, some plans laid down an organization, now he's gone blind. There's a certain tragedy to Alton's story here that even though there's, he's got a massive love of learning what he doesn't really have is a good sense of what to do with it. And that very much fits mm. a lot of the other things about Earth's culture in the book, that that there is a huge accumulation of things, mm. but that it's not being put to any particular good use um, or even really understood. Like, I mean, I feel like one thing that Alton is saying here is that, that even though they have this mass of information, it's not really organized it's not put into any useful context it's just kind of like a a sitting archive uh rather than a sort of you know usable Mm. library which i think we could all agree that you know since it's 
pitch dark down there. <laughs> you know, it's not the most inviting place for people to come and browse their book. Uh, well, they have upper floors, right? They have up, up to the 49th floor. It's just in the, in the basement. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I'm just thinking that, you know, what we're shown of the library, like the, the picture that Wolf's trying to create here. It's very cozy. Like, I think all of us would love like I think I think that the trick here is that so many of us would love to be Alton and to just have that library all to ourselves. And, mm -hmm. and that's a kind of paradise of reading. Um, but I feel like what Alton's life because because Wolf takes it further and shows how Alton then grew to be an old man, having lived that whole life. And I feel like Alton's kind of he's disappointed. You know, he even says that that you know the uh that i was finally ready to take care of things but i was struck blind in order to remember you know how sort of how humble i need to be well it's, and, the, and the reading is, has become almost a burden to him he when he's now that he's trying to um to, to act to take all that knowledge that he's, he's collected and act he says i lost to books days yeah. and even weeks during which I should have been considering the operations of the establishment that looked to me for leadership. And then even that one, there's one little point where he says, I was up to reading two books a day, which sounds really cool. And sometimes maybe bragging. I mean, depending on how fast you read <laughs> or, or you know, somebody reads, but when you think <laughs> of the vast scope of this library to only read two books a day, um, is just a tiny, tiny fraction of what's there. And, you know, if you're someone who mm -hmm. seems to do like Alton is, which is just trying to consume as much as possible, it's sort of a, you know, it's an impossible task to to really get through all of that. So anyway, that's just sort of my take that this time I feel like Alton is being shown sort of in a more negative light. Um, not because of any real, not necessarily a fault of his. I mean, it feels like a fault of the librarians of the, of the guild that they don't really prepare their own people to know what they're doing. Um, it's not Alton's personal flaw there, but it's really more that, that this institution of the library that's supposed to be holding on to this vast wealth of knowledge that earth has from centuries and centuries and centuries. Um, literally all they're doing is just kind of keeping them there. You know, they're, they're just maintaining it, but they're not able to sort of make it available or organize it or help people use it or, or something. Ah, but he wanted to, he was, he had his first major yep. surgery survey yeah. of the library and, uh, and then yeah. it all went bad, but he, and he has a bad opinion of these early days as well. He's, he says he has, it speaks, speaks of a conversion period. He, he says, then as suddenly as a striking of a clock, a new passion came to me, displacing the old. This is where he's he's reading up on the 49th floor of the library at a window seat overlooking a garden of the upholsterer's guild. And he mentions it's a place where they dry rosemary for pillow stuffing. And then suddenly he realized that he'd been sitting there for hours and hours without reading at all. He realized that he was only considering the book as a physical object than paying any mind to what was inside. And all these years later, he can describe the precise details of the binding paper and everything else which it's interesting that he's overlooking the upholsterers guild that this would occur because upholsterers of course are for the uh covering and the decoration of the outside of things. Uh -huh. yep that does make sense yep he's this is another long and really great passage he says we have books here bound in the hides of echidnas krakens and be so long extinct that those whose studies they are are for the most part 
of the opinion that no trace of them survives unfossilized. We have books bound wholly in metals of unknown alloy, and books whose bindings are covered with thick-set gems. We have books cased in perfumed wood, shipped across unconceivable gulf between creations. Books doubly precious because no one on earth can read them. We have books whose paper are matted of plants from which spring curious alkaloids so that the reader in turning their pages is taken unaware by bizarre fantasies and chimeric visions. Books whose pages are not paper at all, but delicate wafers of white jade, ivory, and shell. Books too whose leaves are the desiccated leaves of unknown plants. Books we have also that are not books at all to the eye, scrolls and tablets and recordings on a hundred different substances. There is a cube of crystal here, though I can no longer tell you where. No larger than the ball of your thumb that contains more books than the library itself does. Though a harlot might dangle it from one ear for an ornament, there are not volumes enough in the world to counterweight the other. All these I came to know, and I made safeguarding them my life's devotion. One thing you have to point out is that although he did anticipate there the, you know, like a hard drive with tons and tons of books, he also anticipated the nook. In the 80s, he knew what a tablet was. He knew that a tablet would be reading. And of course, that's what he meant by the word tablet. So that's a perfect place where Wolf could see into the future, know what a word was going to mean in the future and used a perfect word for it. So Wolf, Wolf, yes, of course, because that's exactly what he would mean by tablet. <laughs> he got the Kindle in the nook. He figured it all out before anybody else did. So, well, yeah, well, I, I love those, those descriptions. Yeah. I mean, just, just all the pieces of them. And it also... I have to admit, it makes me very sad that I was not able to buy one of the, um, you know, Folio Society copies. Six hundred bucks for the for the thing was, was not <laughs> going to happen right now. But if they do print it again, then maybe. Well, I, I can assure you that Alton would be proud of you for purchasing a book of such <laughs> fine physical quality. It's also interesting that, uh, as has been noted many times before, that there is a book in the library that is bigger than the library itself which the where the contents are greater than the container you know we talked about that with nigel and and mm -hmm. it's he's talking about that here but then he's also talking the way he talks about the library extending beyond the walls um is also alluding to that idea as well so olton says that he did focus on the preservation of their books for seven years and just as he prepared for the first general survey of all the books in the library he went blind he's he who had given all books into my keeping made me blind so that I should know in whose keeping the keepers stand. Very profound, but Severian is not so impressed. He says, um, look, since you can't read the letter, how about I read it to you? <laughs> this, uh, this puts Alton back to, on task. So he has uh, Kibby read the letter. It's from Master Gerloise. Uh, Gurlois announces his guild and the Alton suddenly realizes that he's talking to a tor torturer. It's very end says he is. And that then Alton just stands there staring into space or he would if he could stare. But, you know, it's very assumes he's having the same reaction to his job that everyone else has. And Kimmy starts to read again, but Alton stops him. 
he wants to explain how the apprentices are admitted to the librarian's guild. And again, this is an allegory. It's essentially a story any reader can relate to for how they came to love books. There's a children's room in every library. Alden said this is according to an ancient precept. Children come there and read books suitable to them. The librarians pay them no mind. What they are watching for is the child that abandons the children's room and searches elsewhere. That child will eventually come upon the book of gold, but it isn't gold in color. Alton tells Severian he's never seen the book and never will because that is Severian hasn't because he's beyond the age that it can be found. Alton says that it's bound in black buckram. Buckram is what you're familiar with from any cloth bound hard back cover book. It's faded at the spine and the signatures are coming out. That means the pages are starting to come out, come loose from the binding. He says he wishes he could find it again himself. Um, a lot of readers have attempted to, to identify a specific book that Wolf might have had in mind. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It sounds very common. It could be anything. And that's the point, really, right? Yeah. And I, I have to admit one thing that I hadn't, all the times I've read this and it never clicked until just now, I always assumed that the Book of Gold was gold. But I never noticed before that the cover is black. Yeah. It's just a black cloth bound book. Like the, the, like the paper cover has come off. Right. Right. So that's, that always, that hit me this time. I was like, Oh, <laughs> I always assumed it would be kind of like, you know, flashy. And that's, <laughs> that's one reason why they get to it, but this makes it better. So, um, so shame on me for not catching that before, but well, someone, someone interviewed uh, Wolf and asked him what the book of gold for him was. And he had to stop and think about it, which is, it wasn't all that long ago, so that it kind of surprised me that no, mm -hmm. that no one had asked him that. But he said, I have to think about that. He says, probably it would be the complete works, uh, complete poems of Rudyard Kipling that his aunt had given him in 1945. Hmm. And he said he hadn't, he'd never read them all, but that's many of them he had read dozens yeah. and dozens. No, I remember my dad's copy of The Hobbit. That was pretty much, yeah, literally, that was, that was kind of what, what set a whole lot of stuff in motion. And I think a lot of people now would probably say that Book of the New Sun is their book of gold. So, and and I know there are people who this is not my curiosity on but who do think that you know possibly the Book of Gold would be the Book of the New Sun that is back in the library. Um, you know, if we're talking about time travel <laughs> and and you know Severian doing other things, then very possibly yeah. it it could be that. So I think even I don't even think. I don't think this is real even in the story. It's it's an, it's an allegory when he calls the book of gold. He says that Severian can't possibly mm -hmm. find the book because he's too old yeah. to find the book. It's, this, it's, only, it, it's only someone who can join the guild of the librarians who is young enough to re find a particular book and have it seize yeah. them. And that would... That would make more sense because otherwise it feels like this story, if if it's Alton telling them literally what's going on, then there's some kind of magic something happening, right? Um, which right. I don't think, yeah. which would be, it feels to me like that would be out of place here, um, even even for the, rule, the rules of Earth yes. of, of how things work in this world. So yeah, it makes more sense that that's really more like a little fable about how, you know, they find out that there's one kid who just, you know, they they live for the library. Yeah. It's obsessed. They come in. So right. the one other thing we didn't mention yet though, was um, 
<laughs> where's the line? The child, as I say, in time discovers the book of gold. Then the librarians come like vampires, some say, but others say like the fairy godparents <laughs> at a christening, you know, and they speak to the child and the child joins them and henceforth he's there. So that that's, you know, he says, some say like vampires and some say like fairy godmothers. Um, again, going back to that, that kind of, you know, I, it, like you, like you talked about, like someone wanting to, to, you know, just get into obsession with books to some people. That's, that's the kiss of death, right? That's like, they'd be some vampires are coming <laughs> after them. You, exactly. poor, so. you poor sucker. But, but I can assure you that, that for someone who has found a book of gold, that there's nothing more that attractive than a child who is oh, also yeah. finding that. And something else, another point, vampires are fairy creatures. They, they follow the same rules of all fairies of, aversion to iron unable to cross running water and, and fairies just like vampires steal children so i mean there's not all that much difference it's, it's just a matter of of the way you look at them it's it's, yeah. it's two sides of the same coin to say they're like vampires no mm -hmm. they're like mm -hmm. fairy yeah. godparents <laughs> from that point on the child joins the librarians and no matter where he goes he's always in the library because as we've said the library is everywhere the Commonwealth's infinite library is a mysterious, magical place. So the child's parents no longer know him. He's gone over to the other side. Holden says he's sure the torturers get new apprentices the same way. And Severian says, well, actually, they get them from children that fall into their hands. And Holden says, us too. Yeah. Yeah, us too. We're in, he says, we're in no place to judge. And here's another instance, this time from Holden where we get the theme that all people are torturers in some sense. The Torturers Guild is a theme for humanity at large. And let's not forget that Gene Wolfe himself has often been described <laughs> as a torturer of readers. So Kimmy reads on. Gerloise mentions a new client, Chatelaine Thecla. Is that right? Is that the right I pronunciation? So. Yep. Yep, yeah. I believe so. He wants Alton to check out four books for her to read while she's with them. And Gibby doesn't need the candelabra to find the books, which suggests that he has the same relation to the library that I have to mine, where you can just close your eyes and put your hand on most of the books. And Olton, as well, can tell Gibby which shelf to look for a book, how high up, and what it's leaning on. He, he tells him to look for the, the book of Wonders of Earth and Sky. He tells him it's what it looks like, what the the color of the book it's leaning on, which is a, a green cover and has and is entitled the um, Seventeen Megatherians. Which should we talk? Is this the right time to talk about mega? The meaning of megatherian? We could. We could also talk about seventeen. Um, seventeen is a number that shows up a lot in not just here, but in Wolf stuff, and it's obviously yeah. Wolf does not like seventeen, so because <laughs> it's usually a bad thing. Well, <laughs> if you think. Well, if you pick that number, once you've picked that number, the it's going to show up a lot because those seven the seventeen megatherians are, megatherians means giant beasts. They're the like Erebus and mm -hmm. Abia and all the others who are these powers on Earth that basically control whole countries and regions. And I get the idea that the Commonwealth is really unique in that it's not being controlled by those particular. Uh, giant be giant aliens right. they're being controlled by uh, other aliens 
And there's a nation just to the north of them called Asia, which is, um, if it's not the, Amer the North America and Central America, then, you know, it's it certainly implied that he, it's like that. And they are under the control of Erebus, and, but they are ruled by a council of 17, which I think probably is, are supposed to um, shadow or imply or represent the 17 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. giant alien beasts. The, uh, and as, of course, as I've said, um, I think that there's a reason why Alton knows exactly where that particular book about the Megatherians is. When Severian asks Alton what one of the Brown books, the, the Wonders of Earth and Sky, is about, he says that the librarians are concerned with books themselves, not their contents. And Severian replies that he suspects Alton knows the contents of all the books. Alton denies that, but he says that the Brown book was a standard work three or four hundred years ago. It's a book of well-known ancient legends. His favorite story is the one about the historians that tells of the time when every legend could be traced back to a half-forgotten fact. And that's a paradox because the legends of the historians is one of those legends. And implicit assertion is that none of the legends can be traced back to a half-forgotten fact, although many anthropologists and popularizers like Robert Graves mm -hmm. attempt to do just yeah. that. Severian has a different take on the legends. He says, aren't there any giant serpents or flying women? The, the implication is that now in this future, there are giant serpents or and flying women. And Olton says, well, of course, but not in the legend <laughs> of the historians. And they find the book and Severian reads from it at random by which means a picture might be graven with such skill that the whole of it, should it be destroyed, might be recreated from, uh, from a small part and that small part might be any part. So once again, Severian has a kind of epiphany like he did when he was standing in front of the, the picture of the, of the moon landing. For, for a reason he does not know, the woman he saw exhumed the other night comes to mind. And Severian supposes that it was the word graven. So, but when Wolf has someone suppose and then answer, it's almost always an Right. Inaccurate. And eventually, well, when you reread it, you're supposed to notice that, you know, he thinks, okay, I'm, I'm connecting this to the grave or to what happened in the graveyard because of the word graven. But we know that what's really going on mm -hmm. is that that's connected to the Alzaba ritual, um, which is going to, of course, recreate all of the memories of uh, Thecla. And that's what we get to. So that actually leads me to a question here with this one. Um, you could take this as Severian sort of in retrospect, maybe fudging the story a little bit here and saying, I had some you know, inkling or premonition of what was really going on there. It could be that, like, I, I feel like some people who are, um, you know, maybe more skeptical of, of Severian might say, yeah, this is something that he's doing as a revision to kind of say he, he was, you know, he was really smart or he was tied in. I knew it all along. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I feel like, it, and it kind of goes back again to that that passage about the symbol where the 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 symbols and the meanings and the 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 sort of abstract ideas can connect a lot of things even when we don't know it um whereas here of course what what wolf is suggesting that could be happening is that again just like we talked about with how severian might have one foot you know outside of time and and be at a uh you know 
sort of higher plane, um, that something like that might be going on here, that, you know, he's, he's connected mm -hmm. to an idea of what's going to be really important to him later. Um, and because of either something special about him or because of what the high rows and folk might be doing in the background to kind of prime him to push him in the right direction might be happening here that they're, they're kind of helping him connect the dots somehow. Or he could have part of his gift. Like I said, with, with memory is that what he knows in the future mm -hmm. seeps its way down. So when he has this vision of the new sun, a light that shines and basically mm -hmm. gives life to everything. That's that that's knowledge that's coming to right. him from what he's yeah. going to know yeah. in the future. And this would be another example of exactly that. Yeah. He knows the picture is of the, the moon landing. It belongs in the moon because he's going to know it later. So Alden basically describes how the, how the whole thing works. He Severian asks him about the, the ritual. He says, it's unwise to know too much about these practices, though, when I think of sharing minds with a historian like Lohman or Hermas. And then Severian says in his years of blindness, he must forgot how nakedly our faces can betray our deepest feelings that he sees in the light of the candles. His face is twisted in such an agony of desire that out of decency, I turned away. And then, of course, he denies ever having mm -hmm. partaken in a ritual like that, which no one ever accused him of, which is suspicious. So St. Loman, um, of these of these two historians, of these two historians, St. Loman, um, I don't really have a whole lot to, to say about. Um, he was apparently another Irish saint who was connected with St. Patrick uh, in some way or another. But Hermas sticks out to me. There's very little that I can find about Hermas himself. But Hermas is very close to Hermes. And Hermes uh, Trismegistus, and I'm, my pronunciation here is Trismegistus, which means thrice greatest Hermes. But he was um, responsible for uh, some of the most influential um, esoteric writings in the Renaissance that had to do with alchemy and, you know, Rosicrucianism and Freemasons all kind of go back to this stuff. The idea was that he was actually an ancient Greek writer. He wasn't. It was It was something that was, you know, much, much, much uh, more recent than that. But a lot of the old occultists look back to him as sort of the the true the true giver of knowledge of all of all things occult. Um, but the fact that it was also kind of a, a pretty well eventually known to be made up <laughs> and not ancient um, was also something very well known. So just the fact that that Alton here is mentioning. Hermes, which could be Hermes, just is fun as an idea that, you know, he could be pointing out that there's all kinds of odd, twisted roots that you could take to learn about both history and and different knowledge here. But it could also be false and there could be lots of dead ends. Um, you know, I just wanted to bring that up. I don't really have anything perfectly good to say about it, but um, the closest thing that we get to, to Hermes being here. Um, in the library just seems seems intriguing so if, if someone out there has a better connection to it let me know do we know anything about Loman? oh he was apparently he was saint patrick's nephew if i'm getting this right so uh that's it converted a local chieftain says another tradition says he was in the seventh oh. century but that would apparently not put him with saint patrick in ireland that's all i can find yeah the thing about Loman and Hermas, there's a little, there, there are legends about Loman, but no one really even 
even though he's said to be the nephew of St. Patrick, the, the stories don't all agree. Uh, Hermas is one of two other saints, and the only thing known about them is that they were martyrs and that they had feast days on the same day. Oh. That's, which makes it interesting that these are historians of, uh, of Earth that have been essentially forgotten by history. Yeah. Yeah. Usually I don't get into, I have to admit, I usually don't get too much into following the saint names and, and what they really mean, but those guys stood out. So it feels like, <laughs> I feel like when there are names that are just kind of thrown out there like this, it's almost more fun to look them up than like Drott or Roach or something like that. Oh yeah. So very end supposes, well, what if one guy took a corpse and and just took his hand the other guy took the other hand will each one get the, you know half the knowledge from the one hand and the other get half the knowledge from the other and then what if someone ate the foot and alton says it's a shame that severian is a torturer because he'd make an excellent philosopher but he tells them as i understand the noxious matter everybody gets the whole life so then severian posits that a whole man's life must be in every part of him just as described in the book. And Olten agrees, but Severian doesn't let up. That means a man's whole life must be in his knuckle, but that's impossible. How big is a man's life? And Severian says, oh, I don't know, but it must be bigger than that. And so Olten says, you see it from the beginning and anticipate much. I, recollecting it from its termination, know how little there has been. I suppose that is why the depraved creatures who devour the bodies of the dead seek more. And Alton offers an analogy. Are you aware that a son often strikingly resembles his father? And Severian says yes, and thinks of the parents that he would never know. Eventually, Severian will encounter a man who resembles him very much, and it will be his father. And so Alton continues that... If each man resembles his father, then a man resembles his great-grandfather, and they all came from a tiny bit of sticky fluid. So it's the same principle. And that's the end of the discussion. Kaibi Kibi comes with the other three books, and Severian leaves. And although he did return to the upper levels of the library, he said he never returned to the tomb-like cellar and never wanted to. So, the four books that Severian got. There's the, the book of wonders of earth and sky. And for future reference, it's going to be called the Brown book. The subtitle is being a collection from printed sources of universal secrets of such age that their meaning has become obscured by time. And there's also a coffee table book, 45 by 18 inches. That is 114 by 45 centimeters. It has an arms symbol on the cover and Severian supposes that it's a history of some sort, some old noble family. It's called a folio. And the fact that he supposes it made me think that it isn't exactly true, but. I was actually trying to think like, why would Thecla be interested in that? And I mean, one obvious answer would be she wanted something, you know, familiar and maybe about her family and she could trace, you know, if, if it, if the arms, you know, is sort of like the coat of arms of her family. And then this would be a way to, you know, find that. I was also wondering maybe if it was something like she's trying to trace out who all might be related to her so that she could write them and 
Yeah, that's yeah. exactly why what I assumed. Because the the Book of Wonders of Earth and Sky, you know, you can say, mm-hmm. well, she's got to kill some time. Uh, the little green book, the size of a hand and as thick as a finger, it appeared to be a book of prayers and devotions. It, it, she's in a moment of a, a time of crisis, so she wants that. But the coffee table book, you know, it's hard to see what use that would have other than to, to mm-hmm. look up names of, of people who could help her get out of it. The last book is never described, but Wolf has tipped his hand that it is the book of the new sun, the book of stories that we're going to find out in uh, the Earth of the New Sun that it was written by the by someone in the cell next to the famous uh, conciliator mm-hmm. of ancient times. He was a teacher and a healer who appeared as the sun had just started to dim, but apparently right. not in this book, right? So if that's true, then then I think it's important when we talk about what Thekla and Severian talk about later, because they have sort of, you know, fun, hypothetical, philosophical situations. But if that is the book, then it means that Thekla's also been doing some theology. <laughs> She's been doing some theological reading for a while. And so, you know, she may be trying out some some ideas or, or that she has here. It may not be just pure fun like it sometimes seems like. The Green Book. He's a green book hardly larger than my handful of enameled pictures of ascetic pantocrators and hypostases with black halos and gem-like robes. I stopped for a time to look at them, sharing a little to look at them sharing a little forgotten garden full of winter sunshine with a dry fountain. Um, and just the fact that here is what looks like a strange sort of religious book. Um, with, with possible saints. I mean, with the people with halos and and robes and, and, um, uh, but then to have it have a dry fountain, especially since that is the opposite of, you know, the, the fountain that is one of the three images. So, um, almost like, you know, emptied religion, uh, that, that this is a book of sort of, you know, tales that are no longer meaningful and, um, just wanted to, he doesn't make any more of it than that, but it is just really something to point out here that here's a possible religious book that's shown as not really um, virile, that's that's not producing anything. Um, and so we're in a, a time where, you know, we've got religion that's not really capable of doing much. So, uh, but just that idea that it had a, there's a picture of a dry fountain. That's, that's not accidental. Oh, the term Pantocrator. It's, um, you know, that's when I first read that probably the first couple of times, I always just read it as pan creator and it's not, it's a, it's something entirely different. It's a, it's a Christ mm-hmm. reference. It depicts, uh, Jesus as the, uh, ruler of the universe. It's a Eastern Orthodox, uh, reference. It's derived from one of the. It's derived from a, a name for God in Judaism. So with that idea that a Christ figure being a, a ruler, like the ruler, or some of the thing ones I've said is Christ is an emperor. Um, well, Severian could be a Christ figure, as we know, and he's going to become autarch. So that's definitely something um, that connects here. It's interesting that then here you have that idea with a dry fountain, whereas, of course, Severian's going to have a really effective fountain um, in the long run. But it's also called an yeah. ascetic pentocrator. Well, um, and Yeah. Well, I think that it must refer to a very technical, iconic uh, mm-hmm. format. For instance, you know, if you were to see a particular icon 
of Christ as the Pantocrator, that it would look a certain way. It would have, you know, like a halo around it. He'd be actually showing, you know, I think two fingers uh, pointing up. So possibly in Severian's time, that image ha is something that has become common among religious leaders throughout the ages so that, you know, oh, okay, that's, that's, a, mm -hmm. that's another Pantocrator. Yeah. And so then hypostases, the other one, um, that's a term that usually kind of means one of two things. It can mean um, the in just sort of generic metaphysics, it could be the the essential substance, you know, the the basic stuff that a thing is made of. But in theology, it is hypostases is um, uh, God, the son, I mean, father, son and Holy Spirit. It's the different versions of the Trinity. So, yeah, I mean, it's so tempting to want to look at this image here of, you know, having the hypostases as like, you know, the three different versions of a god with black halos and gem-like robes. I mean, but to try and figure it out, it's it's so, <laughs> it's so <laughs> esoteric at this point that it just seems to suggest a lot of connections. Right. But, yeah, I would love to know what that book was. Yeah, one thing I want to say, I'm really interested in the description of a... Um, uh, of the brown book because I'm actually trying to make one. So my dad left me a lot of leatherworking stuff, and I figured one thing that would be fun to to use would be to get really good copies of all the brown book stories that we have, and actually try to figure out how to bind it. So that's sort of a that's a side project I'm working on right now. So that's that's we've got to the end of it at last. So do we have a Curtas uh, Earthus for today? Yes. Do you want to do yours first? All right. Curiositas Urthus. So this is a is a theory that Alton is suspiciously connected with satanic symbols. There's there's many things that we've that we've already mentioned ourselves. This theory mentions that. Uh, Kibby is carrying a five-branch candlestick, which could hint to the occult symbol of the pentagram, and that the procession of the librarians down Ayubar Street, Ayubar could reference uh, the uh, Morning Star or Lucifer. The, the theory doesn't really come down to a conclusion of what that all means, but it does hint at something significant. So I like this one because it foreshadows my own Curitas Earthus from last week, that Olden is a follower of Foldless. Yes, Olden is Satan. Interesting. I have to admit, I was just sort of scanning the chapter while you were doing that, and I saw the part where um, Palamon's letter says archivist, and for a second I thought Antichrist. I was like, ah, it could be. <laughs> well, I'll put a, uh, a link to this theory in the show notes. So I have one from Reddit. Um, and I thought this was actually really creative. It doesn't, um, I, I don't really see any textual support for it. Um, but someone who is suggesting that the uh, ball of crystal that uh, contains all the different, all the exactly, books, more all the books the, and more than that, um, that that was right. actually a small version of Father Neri's mirrors. And that the reason it's gone is because it's been being used or is traveling itself um, and, and, um, but I thought this was interesting because the idea that he had goes, or I assume it was he, um, goes that what it's kind of doing is instead of just traveling, it's actually uh, 
somehow maybe if you're if you can read the ideas in in some way that that it will do some kind of I, I guess magical but but uh, sort of the idea that you can travel to different dimensions by thinking of the stories or reading the stories. Um, but it was a really creative idea. I mean, I'm not sure if the the person was actually putting it forward as what it actually is and and you know as if a puzzle that they figured out, but. You know, it was crystal, which is not exactly a mirror, but um, but the again, the idea that, you know, like we had talked about, it's bigger on the inside than the outside. It seems like a kind of hyperspace kind of thing. Well, the idea of a library as a traveling device is well, yeah. that kind of yeah. fits, doesn't it? Um, made me think, too, of the old cartoon. Um, I forget which one, it, what it was actually called, but the old cartoon where... It, when the the people open up the books, they actually get to go into the world, and they're kind of hiding from each other, and by running into Alice in Wonderland and and going into different different books. I'll have to look up which one that is because now I've got to find it. So, but, <laughs> yeah. So I, I actually kind of like that one. That one I'm not I'm I'm not making fun of because I actually I don't think that's there. But I thought that was really cool to think of a sort of library version of Father and Neri's mirrors that was that was moving. But it is interesting that it's lost. I do think, I, I wonder if that was just yeah. a fun note. That's the one thing about that mention there that makes me wonder if there's a little more. It's one of the, one of those points where Wolf adds a detail in that makes it seem slightly more significant than it might actually be. Well, that's one of those, th that is just the kind of book that someone would check out of the library and not return. You have a point. Yes. Yes, indeed. You know, this chapter is so, is really so many people's, favorite and, and nostalgic point. And I've, I've, no, I've read a lot of people who say that it was reading this chapter that kind of hooked them and, and made them stick with it. Even, even when the, the going gets a little rough later on and you don't know why things are happening, um, that this was fun enough to, to warrant that. So I hope you guys have enjoyed it. If there are favorite parts that you have, please get in touch with us, get in, uh, send us a note on Twitter or Facebook. Or you can even email us, rereadingwolf at gmail.com. And we will talk about you and your ideas as soon as we can. Yeah. And so in a couple of weeks, we'll return with Chapter se 7, The Traitorous, where we're going to meet uh, Thecla. Finally meet Thecla. Yes. Well, good. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you have some new ideas. And hope you have something that you want to offer us as well. So. Thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you much. Oh, come on in closer, baby. Hear what else I got to say. You got your radio turned down too low. Turn it up. Oh. You can't judge sugar by looking at the king. I got a dust speck in my throat. <laughs>